0: Hello, I am Richard Booker, I am a haematologist in the West Midlands, England, and this is Don't Just Read the Guidelines. Don't Just Read the Guidelines is a podcast that explores ideas and research at the cutting edge of medicine, especially anything to do with blood. I aim to provide a platform to incredible people you probably haven't heard from before and share their work, ideas and opinions. We will take you beyond the guidelines and into the research behind them, and most importantly, into the sticky world of opinion and conjecture. You can subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform, and don't forget to leave a review, as it really helps others to find the show. If you would like to come on the podcast or know someone else who would be great, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. My guest on this episode is Dr. Gordon Caldwell. Gordon is a retired NHS medical consultant who finished his career up in Oban in Scotland, but worked in many places across the UK. Gordon has uh, reached uh, notoriety very recently for his photo which went viral and was picked up by the national press of him lying next to all the paperwork that needs to be completed for a medical patient. He's convinced that by cutting the crap we can improve healthcare, improve efficiency and improve the NHS. This is a really interesting discussion and I hope you enjoy. Gordon came to my attention on Twitter because he is very vocal about efficiency in healthcare and how we need to hashtag cut the crap. So welcome to to podcast, Gordon.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to talking with you, Richard.
0: So tell me how you how did you end, what just briefly your career how did you end up in in the back and beyond the beautiful part of Scotland that you that you live?
1: <laughs> well, going right back, I, I did three years in Oxford as an undergraduate, and then went to King's for three years where I graduated and worked shortly for six months there, and then down to Brighton for two or three years, up to Edinburgh as a medical registrar doing endocrinology and diabetes, then to the postgraduate medical school for two or three years doing some uh, research and then a senior registrar rotation in Newcastle uh, for 4 years before moving to Worthing uh, i went there in 1993 became a consultant in general sorry general medicine diabetes and endocrinology and worked there through till the end of 2017 When I decided it'd be interesting to do something different for the last four or five years of my career and moved up to the west coast of Scotland um, and got a job in Oban Hospital, a very small hospital, just um, four consultant physicians uh, running the hospital, three surgeons, two radiologists, and two or three anaesthetists Um, and worked there until September last year.
0: How did you feel like your training up until that point prepared you for something so different?
1: Well, I think because during my consultant career, everything was becoming more specialised um, and particularly the development of the acute medical units um, meant that um, I really wasn't very well prepared by that stage. And I was a senior registrar in Newcastle, then I was used to dealing with the whole of the medical take because at that stage, um, it was possible to have some understanding of the whole of general medicine and to know how to direct people to the correct specialty. But by the time I'd finished uh, all those years at uh, Worthing, I, the acute medical team were doing all uh, pretty much all the admitting. Uh, I was running a downstream ward, which was general medicine, which effectively meant geriatrics and, and, and end-stage oncology. Um, so it was a big shock to uh, suddenly be faced with having to deal with um, myocardial infarction, strokes, acutely psychotic patients, overdoses, pneumonia, um, HIV, uh, just a, a huge range. So that was, it was very interesting and challenging because I never knew what was going to happen next and what sort of cases were going to come in. Um, so, yeah, it was a very interesting job to do for those years. What
0: was the hairiest experience you've had in Oban?
1: The hairiest was probably uh, a child of about 18 months old that was brought in within about three months of me starting in the middle of late one evening. Um, And the the GP had been looking after the child during the day and going back and seeing what was happening. And then he got sufficiently concerned to bring the child in. Um, And the child was very unwell with a high fever and had low blood glucose levels. So we were talking to the paediatric specialists in Glasgow Um, and treating the child for sepsis and then um, no treating the child for the low blood glucose that's right and then they said well maybe you should give some antibiotics Uh, so gave some antibiotics which was very fortunate because the child turned out to have meningococcal meningitis and the reason the glucose level was low was because of the the degree of sepsis Uh Um, and then given the antibiotics stabilised and helicoptered out and the child yeah. made a full recovery but okay. the the feeling of, you know, I hadn't done any paediatrics really since I was a, a medical student yeah. um, so that that challenge was you know, it felt really frightening and worrying yeah. but um, good, good teamwork then with the the GPs still there helping out all the time, the foundation year two doctor c- coming in giving comments and help and uh, the anaesthetist <laughs> is, Putting in all the lines for the child, okay. but uh, yeah, that was felt well out of my depth. There,
0: wow! I did my medical elective in Jasper, in Canada, which is a similar setup. Really, they're four hours from Edmonton, a couple of hours from a CT scanner. They've got a lab, they can do sort of the basics, and they've got X-rays. Um, and that's a really interesting place, but yeah, staffed by GPs, but GPs that are super duper, you know, it's been all over the place, done a bit of anaesthetics, this, that and the other. So it sounds, it sounds kind of similar, although it's, open sounds a little bit more, a little bit more supportive, but I can't imagine being a consultant in acute medicine for your whole life and then having to deal with an 18 month old who's sick. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. Was was the child okay?
1: Yes. i say the child made a full recovery. About, so, yeah. Uh, success. Yeah. So, mm-hmm.
0: So, tell me about where your passion for this, this idea of lean healthcare came from. Or first, I probably the question is, what is lean healthcare? Why don't you like that term? <laughs> and why do you prefer Cut the Crap? And where did it all come from?
1: Well, I, I don't like lean in the same way that um, most hospital consultants don't like the latest management speak. Because, the, yeah. as you know, there's always some initiative coming through that we're meant to be following and is meant to solve all the NHS problems. Um, and... I think there's a lot of consultants see lean as do the same amount of work with less staff um, and see more patients. So, you know, it's Do more work with whatever you've got mm-hmm. and make it cost less. Whereas for me, um, I think inherently I'm lazy. And so I don't want to be doing stuff that's a waste of time. And I only want to be doing the stuff that really matters. So um, I think all my career Uh, Since I first saw a computer in about 1985, I thought the computer can do a whole lot of work for us. It can remember stuff, it can do calculations, should be able to free our minds up to think and do the work we're meant to do. So I was always interested in organizing my work efficiently um, and making sure that I I could see what was wrong with the patients and, and, and deal with their issues. So then when I got interested in quality and safety, people were talking about lean, and it just means don't waste people's time. And it's, you know, we have, we've only got one lifetime. We've only got one lot of time. Uh, so it's really important we're not wasting it. And to waste anybody's time is, is an insult and disrespect, uh, as well as slowing. Like, like in that context where I just talked about, the 18-month-old child who had meningitis, we couldn't be f- filling in endless forms and six sepsis protocols and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> we had to get on and get the child, the low glucose corrected, get the antibiotics into the child, get the blood pressure up, stabilise the child, get them ready for transfer by helicopter. Yeah. Um, but what struck me is that there's so much now in the NHS that's inefficient that is wasting staff time and taking us away from the patients. So for me, Lean is uh, is about releasing time to think or releasing time to be doing something else not releasing time to make somebody unemployed or to save money it's improving the quality
0: mm. who do you think uh, who do you think wastes the most time then who, who's on the receiving end of that waste is it is it the consultants the juniors is it healthcare assistants nurses
1: well, it's the patient who's <laughs> yeah, the okay, person yeah, who correct. suffers most yeah. <laughs> because yeah. we're away filling in forms and and duplicating stuff manually, either on paper or in computer. Um, that's that's taking us away from the patients and taking us away from getting the thing moved ahead uh, swiftly. Yeah. I think probably nursing is more overburdened with waste than medicine, but in medicine, it's still. Very inefficient. I mean, my feeling is whether I was doing a post-state ward round or doing an outpatient clinic, if you gave me an energy rating like a fridge, I'd be working at around about 20% efficiency. So 80% effort to generate 20% output. Um, and I think most most people would recognize the sort of inefficiency. Every time a letter comes in from a GP... It's got the patients' diagnoses and medicines listed in it. But we then end up writing that down in the notes or typing it into the computer. Then we dictate it to our secretary, who types it again, by which time there's a number of errors, so we correct it. Then we send it out back to the GP, and it doesn't even link digitally with the GP, so the GP has to employ a clerk to go through everything and see what changes we've made to update their computer system. Now, all of that slows everything down. Um, and affects every patient's care. Okay. I think for me, when I was developing a checklist for ward rounds to make sure we weren't missing anything important and um, and to make sure we'd done a, a thorough job for other patients. And that was at the time when Atul Gawande was developing the World Health Organization operating theatre checklist. So I got in contact with him and said, you know, uh, ward rounds are our theatre of operations. What what would you recommend for us on a checklist and the most important thing he said was, never never introduce a change that slows down the necessary pace of clinical care. So, uh, you know, I, those days I was responsible for a 24-hour take. So the following morning, I had to see all those you know, 20, 25 patients that had come in and get them treated before the disease caught up with them. Yeah. So... Anything that we do that slows down the necessary pace of clinical care will have consequences. Now, we've seen that in the recent months with ambulances queuing outside A&E. Patients waiting in A&E to be seen are missing the opportunity for thrombolysis for stroke um, or uh, a stent for a heart attack um, and patients dying. What would have been surprising would be if the mortality hadn't increased in acute care. So in acute care particularly, we've got to work faster than the diseases progress. Um, so that was my, you know, a whole lot of my interest in lean is how can we get on and do what we have to do for the patients uh, rather than getting slowed down in unnecessary over-bureaucracy.
0: So the, I, to me, there's two facets. There's the, the one is the the slickness of the information transfer. And then the second thing is, Generating data on patients that's utterly meaningless to anyone, and my and anyone who knows me will be will be will be aware that my passion is evidence. And I think we had an email exchange about evidence, and you know, every time a patient comes into hospital Eastwick in hospital in North Midlands, and um we have this proud to care book, which, to be honest, all that I know about it is on page seventeen is the patient's weight. <laughs> it's it's got all manner you know, it's it's got all the things that you taught that are important. But actually, as a doctor, maybe they're less important to you when you're dealing with someone's urine infection. It, it's not that relevant to know that they're Buddhist. So you get all this all this information on, on these patients. You get spiritual needs, pr- water pressure, pressure assessments, dietary, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know whether there's much evidence that any of this improves any outcomes that are meaningful. Are you, are you aware of anything?
1: Um. In a lot of these areas, it's very difficult to get evidence because what we're talking about is quality, and as soon as you're talking about quality, it's much more difficult to get evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think myself that most of those things that you mentioned, there's some reason for knowing about it, Mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be a 32-page booklet, and we should be able to summarise the headline for all of that on one side of A4 or two sides of A4, one screen, two screens of information. Because if you know, I mean, it might be of some significance that the person is Buddhist, um, but you shouldn't have to dig through wads yeah. of paper or screens and screens of information to find that out. So, of course, what you end up doing is asking the patient again what their yeah. religion is, um, and then they get annoyed because they've been asked 70 times already. Um, so, to me, it's the, there usually is a reason for the information, mm. but we haven't sorted out the fact that, the pace of our work means you can't document it in a 32-page booklet. Yeah, It might be different if you're looking after somebody with rheumatoid arthritis over 10 or 15 years in an outpatient clinic. Possibly you have then got time. I'd still argue you probably haven't. So it's it's more to do with um, what is the value in the information, How is how do we know the information is valid, um, and how do we present it mm. so that we can quickly assimilate it into our brains whilst we're at the, at the bedside or in yeah. our patients. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things you mentioned there was the water load score. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a very good example myself of how we've undermined nurses' professionalism. Um, because for me, a nurse who's gone through a university training and has spent, say, a year in uh, general medicine or general surgery or A&E, something like that, can identify a patient who's of pressure risk a false risk, a yeah. risk of delayed discharge, dementia, delirium, within within five seconds probably of meeting the patient, certainly within a minute, can cover identify all those risks. So why do we make her then fill in this twenty um, domain um, form for the water load score? Yeah. Um, and when you talk about evidence, they did a, when I was working in Worthing Hospital, they did a project on reducing pressure damage uh, on the wards. And there were two prongs to the um, I- intervention. One was that they said everybody's got to use the Waterlow score and you must fill it in assiduously. And the other was they provided the nurses with a hotline to a mattress supplier and a bed supplier. Okay. And if the nurse phoned that line within half an hour or an hour a bed or the mattress turned up on the ward. Now, at the end of that, they had reduced pressure damage, so it was good evidence that it worked. Um, And, of course, they then said, well, that shows that the Waterloo score is really, really important. And my response was, well, I haven't seen a Waterloo score correctly calculated during the whole of that project because there's a domain which says, has the patient got respiratory or cardiac failure? And the nurses never filled it in. And that can add five to the Waterloo score. So clearly what the nurses were doing was looking at the patient, identifying that they were a pressure risk, They got this wonderful new system: phone up for the mattress or the bed you need, and then went back and or filled in the Waterloo score, so you got the number that justified the phone call. Yeah. So I think the Waterloo score is a good training technique or if you've got somebody where perhaps you're not quite clear whether they need a mattress or not you can go yeah. through it but there isn't any need to do that um and then i mean that then feeds into the other bit about the overduplication because you said the weight is on page 17 or whatever it is well the weight's on the water flow score page it's on the nutrition page it's on the probably on the falls page it's on the pharmacy page yeah. five or six different places which in my experience means it's filled in in two places with different numbers and four places it's bank
0: yeah yeah. I mean, I might be wrong, but I, I, I'm pretty sure every admission gets the same information. You know, if I get admitted to hospital, presumably I'll get a Waterloo score, which is pointless, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends what reason. I mean, because if you come off your motorbike and you yeah. fractured your cervical spine, then <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but then yeah, the nurses know that you need yeah. pressure area care under those circumstances. So I think it's a lot to do with recognition of professionalism and, and, and expertise, Um, and then documenting it, very, very lightweight documentation, so it can be seen and acted on. But the evidence, in my experience, most of these forms and processes that are introduced into medicine, there's no study of effectiveness or efficiency at all. We're given them, here's another form, which will only take a minute to fill in, Um, and it's added on to 30 forms that we've already got, and always looking at the same information. No, doctors, I don't think, are very good at understanding evidence that processes are improved um, because we're always trained on double-blind controlled clinical trials rather than process control. Mm. But there are approaches that you can use for process control to prove that, well, certainly that you haven't done any harm by introducing it, but um, hopefully as well showing some benefit. Yeah.
0: I've just found a, um, a trial, indeed, on this subject. The ulcer trial, 2011 BMJ, quality and safety. Uh, Randomised patients to um, Waterloo or clinical judgment. And the authors found no evidence to show that two common pressure ulcer risk assessment tools are superior to clinical judgment. Resources associated with the use of these tools might be better spent on careful daily skin inspection and improving management targeted at specific sites. That's 2011. We're still doing it it's uh it's interesting isn't it
1: yes i mean i think the big quality control in medicine should be the senior nurse the charge nurse or sister and the consultants and we should be checking the quality of the work um <sighs> so one of the consequences of the nurses having to fill in all that documentation is that sister seems to be in her office all the time um doing paperwork and rotors and such like rather than out on the wards, so, right? There's a, I don't know, a standard protocol for putting in a urinary catheter. Are the staff following it, yeah, or not? Are we getting more urine infections than we should do? And if we are, is that because people have got how to follow the the, the procedure, yeah. or maybe they can't follow the procedure because there isn't a nice room that's clean where you can go and take the patient to put the cath the catheter in? Um, so we've substituted the direct supervision by sister or charge nurse and the consultant with a whole lot of paperwork that and as you say there's no evidence that it works and i suspect it's actually counterproductive a lot of the time
0: so what would your ideal one two page a4 look like would you would you you know this nutrition screening and the the falls risk and things would you just have a tick box nurse's judgment this patient looks all right move on for all those things or would you keep any (laughs)
1: back in 2010, I introduced something like that onto the acute medical unit in Worthing. um, And it it said um, this was for the nursing assessment for the acute admissions, uh, because the nurses were telling me they're spending up to 40 minutes filling in the paperwork for each admission, 30 admissions a day, whatever seemed crazy to me. So I developed one side of A4, which said that my name is Jane Smith. This is my NMC PIN number. Um, In these areas of care, I think there will or won't be a problem, or there won't be or will be a problem. Um, So if you had walked in, and you're possibly DVT or something like that, and you looked fit and healthy, the communication, um, falls, nutrition, all those things would just be no, 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 all the way down. And if there was one that said yes, um, I don't know, maybe you, the reason you're thinking about DVT is you'd recently fractured your ankle and you got a bit of metal work in it, then you probably would be a falls risk. Um, so then it'd say, yes, falls risk, got a contraption in their ankle, might well trip over. Um, yeah. Ask them to call for help before they go to the toilet. Yeah. So, and I think particularly if we were moving to digital, well, we are moving to digital, you could then have a system where the front page was yes or no, and everywhere it said, yes, then you could go into the detail.
0: Yeah.
1: So if nece- if the Waterloo score was necessary, it said, I'm worried there might be a pressure area concern. Right. right. Then we've got the Waterloo score. Then we've got the score. Then we've got the action. Um, that would be a bit more difficult to do on a paper basis, but on a computer basis would be, to me, an effic- effective way of doing it. Okay. And, of course, if we computerized it, then the next time you come in, we can just copy all the information through and up- edit and update it. Um so, yeah, you know, it's something very much headline um, that you can assimilate quickly. So when we put that in, the nurses were saving something they thought like 20, 25 minutes per patient. Um, no. I could pick up the sheet of A4 and see that the prob- this patient was fine apart from the fact they're deaf. Okay, well, we can deal with that. Um but the nursing the director of nursing didn't like it, I think because she felt I was interfering with the nursing process. A patient came through who had a pressure damage and it wasn't identified. Um, so she said, well that was because of your process. Well I suspect that well obviously it wasn't necessarily my process. it was because for one reason or other the nurse hadn't looked at the pressure area yeah and it, it would or wouldn't have looked at it regardless of the, piece, the paperwork. Um, so, unfortunately, that was dropped. We tried, we introduced again something very similar to that in Fort William, which is just north of here. And at, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we put in a, a single side of A4 that did the whole nursing assessment. And the nurses updated every day. Um, but again, as soon as the controls came back in again, that was taken off and back to the 30 page booklet stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Why are people so fond of it? I don't understand. It's, it's this idea of you see one, one thing goes wrong and it's immediately this, this change. But it's all crept in. It's crept in really slowly, hasn't it? You'd think the nurses would love this. I guess the staff nurses love it, don't they?
1: Yeah, the, the frontline nurses love it. Um, but I think there is a, a group of senior nurses who over the last two decades have gone into education and governance mm-hmm. who, as you say, believe, firstly, that things should never go wrong. Um, well, it wouldn't be professional work unless it was gray areas where things are sometimes going to go wrong. Um, And the the response to something going wrong is a new form and a new piece of paperwork rather than a change in the system or a change in the process Mm -hmm. to make things easy. So going back to that pressure damage, what made the difference was they've got a contract with the bed supplier and the mattress supplier. Um, Now, that really would make a difference. And, you know, the consequences are are really serious. I don't know if you read recently that um, uh, in Highland in 2019 at Ragmore, a patient uh, fell on the ward several times, banged his head, and eventually died of um, Mm -hmm. um, the consequence of the head injury. And now Highland are being fined by the health and safety executive. Now, the nurses on the ward said they need, that man needed one-to-one nursing and put in the appropriate um, applications for that, had done presumably all the falls assessments. Um, and the, the patient still fell. That, well, they didn't get any extra staff, and the patient fell and got injured. Now, if we're under pressure, which we are now, and we were in 2019, what you need to do is to free the staff to be able to do the stuff that matters. Uh, What we know about falls is it relates to frailty, Mm -hmm. which we can't do much about, and staffing levels. So if we're understaffed, much better to have the staff with the patient rather than filling in all this extensive paperwork. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that case really illustrated the danger of this huge amount of paperwork, which affects nursing, but affects us in medicine as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it takes away a whole lot of the joy of the work, I think. And if you're not enjoying work, then it's difficult to retain staff and you get more understaffing.
0: It's even the soft things like, you know, we have a, in our emergency assessment unit for, for cancer, we have a, a clarking booklet. You know, it's got pictures of the lungs and pictures of the abdomen. And, and then it's got this, this, this horrible area called neurological assessment that no one ever fills in because you're not going to do a full neuro exam on somebody who's coming with neutropenic steps. It's just unnecessary. You just think, why, what, you just think where has that come from? Why do we need this booklet? Why can't I just clerk this patient? I mean...
1: Okay, well, I think that's interesting. So, back in 2007 or something, we did a a project on a clerking pro forma for the Royal College of Physicians. Did we like it or not? And I said, we'll do it, just to get good relationships with the Royal College. Um, And surprisingly, at the end of the week, everybody liked it. they They wanted to stick with it, but they wanted changes. So eventually I went through, I don't know, 30 PDSAs in a month and got something that worked. Um, but the, the advantage of the clerking pro forma is that there is a place for everything and everything should be in its place. Yeah. Um, so like you're saying, page 17 was the weight on the Clarking pro forma. Top of page three should be the smoking history and the alcohol Quite history. Right. So yeah. I can see that bit. But I think I, it, I think it went out of control, um, and again, it's, it's partly I think the restrictions of it being paper based, because if you make a nice uh, database screen, then you can expand or contract or yeah. or remove bits or you know so um, on a, on screen you could say, did you see the patient walk into the A and E? Yes. Okay. Well, they can walk. That's at least we know they haven't had a, a dense stroke. So it may not be a full neuro exam, but you've got something under neuro. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it went out of control. The, the one that we were using most recently in Highland, I thought was horrible because history of the presenting complaint was reduced to about two square inches. And mm-hmm. yet there's a whole side of A4 for the VTE assessment. <laughs> uh, yeah. And terrible, you know, having to list the meds about three times and all sorts of things. So, um, I mean, again that shows the limitations. And then as we're trying to go digital in Highland, I introduced um, just a Word document template, which was, I did a short clerking and a long clerking. And even the long clerking was only about five pages, I think. Um, But the junior doctor started using the short one, which was meant to be, you've been transferred from another hospital and we're tucking you into bed. But I thought, oh, that's interesting, and because they were sort of, some of them GP VTS trainees sort of graduated three to five years, they could do it all on one and a half sides of A4, yeah. because yeah. they knew the important positives, the important negatives, and how to put it all together. So that it started to interest me in thinking that we actually constrain diagnostic thinking by whatever technology, whether it's a Clarking pro forma or a yeah. computer we are affecting the way that people think diagnostically, mm-hmm. um, which, again, was interesting to me because some of the juniors are saying they really like the computer form and others are saying, well, I like to sort of doodle whilst I'm writing my notes. Um, so, yeah, I find that fascinating. Yeah. But again, the clark performer if we're doing that, then make it into a database because we know that most of our patients have been admitted before. So if they had a smoking history last year three months ago it's not going to be that much different now yeah, <laughs> um yeah. so carry the information through and make it presentable and readable and understandable do
0: you think there's much of a role in in clerking for the patients to write stuff down
1: um you should be a bit wary about that
0: i always thought oh, you know, no you could, no no you, no. you can have your no, patients just, in your E waiting room basically for, for, yeah. you know fill out the history mm-hmm. and even looking into the future they you know, fill out the history ai can tell you, you know, who you need to prioritise. AI could maybe discharge a few.
1: No, I'm sure that patients are one of our least used resources and very valuable resource. Um, In the acute situation, it may be difficult because, of course, a lot of anxiety and and Mm -hmm. worry going on. But I'm sure that for outpatient attendances, um, slightly less acute, yeah, we should be getting the patients to input their stuff. Um, I've seen in the last week or two, a couple of um, you know, software packages where patients would simply put in information, diary stuff, um, record their symptoms, which I'm sure would put us ahead of the game. Mm. Um, because we're asking them to remember their list of meds and things. Well, as you say, if they're going to wait an hour or these days four hours until they see a doctor, then why haven't they pre-filled the clerking performer with a, with a relative or whatever and put yeah. and got their thoughts in order? Yeah.
0: And even the outpatient setting, they could do that before they come. I mean, you go to the dentist and you uh, you start a new, you join a new dentist and you fill out a whole medical history. They don't ask you any questions.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I used to, again, in Oban, I started, I found a third of the patients coming to a new patient appointment didn't even know they'd been referred. And the only right. reason they came was because the thing came through the post saying, turn up on Wednesday at 9.30. Okay. So I started sending them out a the thing saying, you know, your doctor's asked me to see you about some symptoms. Um what things would you like to talk about during the consultation? Are you worried about your health? Um, have things changed in your health so you can't work or enjoy your interests? Um, and that would usually go out two or three weeks before the appointment. And that definitely, for me, improved the quality of the consultation. Yeah. Uh, you asked about evidence and outcomes. I mean, I think in medicine, we should be looking far more at process measures than outcome measures. Okay. Um, because the outcomes are so varied. Um, uh, The the simple example I would use is that two patients admitted aged 80 with pneumonia, a very good outcome in one would be full recovery, and a very good outcome in the other might be end-of-life care. So how when the headline thing in in the coding ICD-10 is going to be community-acquired pneumonia for both patients, so I'm much more keen on looking at process measures, and that's why I published that paper on 10 quality indicators for okay. clinical consultation.
0: So tell me tell me what, what process measures,
1: just for... Well, I mean, again, before. because it's quality, it's difficult. Um, but to me, um, the patient should be prepared, so they should know what the consultation is about, and they should have had a chance to think things through before they come. The doctor should be prepared, which means... You don't just pick up the notes or switch on the computer and see who's coming through the door next. You've got some conception beforehand that the consultation should feel unhurried, both for the clinician and for the patient. Now that can you can have an unhurried consultation that lasts 90 seconds yeah. and you can have a hurried one that lasts forty minutes, but it, it should feel unhurried. Um you should be able to hear yourself think. Um so and you should have some refreshments every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So very simple measures um, that would seem obvious to people. Um, mm-hmm. And if if we're looking at those sort of measurements, um, indicators, and then you get some idea where things are going wrong. So I I did my 10 quality indicators and I don't know, analyzed four clinics or something. And it told me, I suppose, what I really knew is that I'm spending a whole amount of time on the computer all tabbing between different IT applications. Yeah even during the consultation, to, I don't know, find the latest thyroid function test results and the CT scan of the pancreas, whilst the patient was trying to tell me something important about their health. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm hopeful that things like you know the, the IT the IT can improve but the, the NHS is always 10 20 years behind real technology it's really difficult when you've got a big structurally inert organisation to change isn't it what would you i mean it would be lovely to have the world's most perfect IT system for a hospital which does exist in University Hospitals Birmingham it's called PICS. it's brilliant um yeah it's been desi- it was designed in house for for the nh for an nhs hospital and you know it always they all have their problems but it's it's great um and it's all mostly in one place um but clearly if you went into a major hospital and wanted to change the it system that's a big big deal i i really like your idea of the one the one page summary and letting the nurses ha- use their clinical judgment but I, I appreciate that you've had barriers to to implementing that what do you think do you need any extra data, evidence of benefit? Or what can what can you do? What project could you do? And or what data could you collect to convince people who are really viscerally opposed to this that it's a good thing?
1: I think the only thing I could suggest is that they actually go down to the, the shop floor, whether that's A&E, AMU, the wards, outpatients, and experience it. mm mm-hmm. You know, I, I've had lots of um, senior leaders and managers come on my ward rounds um, and generally they say, oh, yes, you look very busy, but they don't seem to understand what's going on underneath it. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that senior nurses in, and senior medics in leadership positions who, um, they should be experiencing the clinical work and experiencing the frustrations themselves. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean I was speaking recently to Dame Donna Kinner, who used to be the chief executive of the RCN. And when she was a director of nursing, she used to make make time to do between two and four weeks of work on the on the nurse as a nurse on the shop floor alongside healthcare assistants. So she knew what it was like and knows what it felt like. But even that can have some limitations because I think some people I mean, you would clearly understand about databases and how they can make life more efficient. Mm. And I suspect that a lot of the people who are advising on IT development and IT systems don't even know that once you put somebody's date of birth into a database, you should never have to type it ever again. Yeah. Once, once you put their address in, you should never have to type it again. Once their diagnosis has gone in, you should never have to type it again. Yeah. So you have to have people who understand both the potential of computing and the clinical processes and see I mean what a nightmare it is really for I mean patients experience all the time. You know, as soon as they mm. cross from primary care to secondary care, their information's cut off. There isn't yeah. any yeah. link between the two. So I think getting the getting the senior leaders and managers understanding and working like that. Now, as I understand, that's the way Mayo Clinic works in America. Is that the senior leaders and managers, or the senior leaders, clinical leaders, all still have to do two or three days clinical work each week? Right. And the the executive team are uh, the executive team. They so the leaders come back and say, our IT systems rubbish. The VTE forms are terrible. You go and sort them out. So because I'm not tearing my hair out next week. Yeah. Um, so I think we've got a system now where the people who mainly influence what happens are distant from the workplace almost seem frightened of it, don't engage with it, and won't acknowledge this massive inefficiency that's going on. Uh, people really busy, but not really busy doing the important stuff like giving the glucose and the intravenous antibiotics. How do we fix that? I wish I knew the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, no. be... See, I
0: was hoping you would be the one person who would know the answer to that. <laughs>
1: no, no, I think... Um, well, my vision would be if you could get, like you've said already, said your hospital's got a really good IT system. So, I mean, that suggests that you're working in a hospital where they're amenable to the idea that if the systems and processes ought to support patient care. So, if you could get one district general or large university hospital that was really got it and really saw how this was interfering with uh, um, flow and with patient care, and had the courage to to Try something like that, cutting down to one side of A4. Mm. Then I think they they would almost – well, they would, I think, find that they a lot of the problems with flow disappeared, um, that patients are getting treated better, complaints went down, litigation went down, staff retention improved. So it really needs – um, a chief executive who gets it, a medical director who gets it, a director of nursing who gets it, a legal department who's willing to run with this terrible risk that if they don't fill in the 32-page form incorrectly, they're going to get sued. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it needs very senior, a strong leadership um, in a flagship organization, yeah. really, to prove that it can be done
0: and maybe you need to have those conversations about you know what happens when this patient has a fall when they didn't have the fall risk assessment done you need to have those you ha- need to have those conversations in advance about the fact you're comfortable with that
1: yeah well i think that uh, looking at other businesses in the health service we have standard operating procedures but we don't actually make them overt i think when i was training as a medical student it was pretty overt this is the st- this is the standard operating procedure for the management of asthma. You do this, 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 and this. Um, and certainly, say, I, mean, I was talking about insertion of a urinary catheter. Well, the hospital should just have, this is the standard way we do it. Ideally, do, I don't know, an A3 poster with lots of visuals on it, mm-hmm. which you could clip to the trolley when you're putting in the urinary catheter. Then at the end of that, you just put into the notes, I, Gordon Caldwell, put in... A size 14 catheter, residual volume 200 mils. I want hourly urine volumes. I followed the standard operating procedure. Because mm-hmm. it's as I think what we've done is shot ourselves in the foot. Um, we believe if it's not documented, it wasn't done. Well, that is true. But that doesn't mean you need to document it in 140 data fields. Yeah. We've decided that the lawyers, all the lawyers want to know is what's the standard, what's the ordinary way of doing it? So, if you follow the standard operating procedure version 2023 February and you note that you've done it, and there's an audit done by Sister every month on whatever it is infection rates and adherence to the procedure, then you don't need 140 data fields. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, if you can get a group of people who are really committed to that and really believe it. Um, If they had the courage, I think they'd end up with a far happier, better treated patients and far happier staff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is hashtag cut the crap. This is the the campaign, isn't it? Tell me a bit more about that.
1: Well, yeah, I suppose I'd read about Lean and particularly started with um, a book called Toyota Culture, the heart and soul of um, the Toyota way um, by Mike Hosius and Jeff Leiker. Um, And Yet again, I was aware that doctors hate management speak and hate waffle and all the the doctory all that management talk and uh, think that leans to do with KPMG coming in and uh, annihilating your staffing levels. So I just wanted to have something that I knew that if you said, go to staff and say, what gets in the way of you doing the work you want to do? What's the crap that stops you doing it? Then they'll all just start talking and tell you. So the nurses, whenever you go to the board nurse and say, what's the crap that stops you doing what you want to? They say, all this bloody paperwork. And if you came to me in the middle of my clinic, uh, A&E, one morning and I was seeing a patient with a TIA, who had to go to the TIA clinic the next day. What gets in the way? Well, it'll take me 20 minutes to do the note to the GP saying the patient's coming to the TIA clinic clinic tomorrow and another 20 minutes to fill in all the request forms by hand. Yeah, yeah. Um, So that's the crap. So it it seemed to me that doctors would listen to cut the crap. <laughs> Whereas if you said, Oh, we're doing a lean project, they'd all just yeah. go off to sleep again.
0: And if anyone's not seen it, there's a there's a now viral photo of Gordon lying next to is it that half it's half the clock the
1: Well that's I, button, I asked um charge nurse on our ward if she could give me one piece of paper, one copy of every piece of paper that was needed if the patient was an acute admission to a medical ward with diabetes and needed intravenous antibiotics yeah so that picture with me lying beside it um is the top half of the, those forms and there's another picture yeah. where they turned them over to show that they're double-sided um and i was just laying them out on the floor when my secretary Lindsay came in and said what on earth are you doing so i told her and she said well lie down there and i'll take a picture with your phone um and that was november 2019 and here we are over three years later and uh, it's still the same mess. Yeah. And I think you know, I emphasise that that's the paper forms. And if you just take those paper forms and put them into computer, you get even bigger mess. So any project where we're trying to cut down that over bureaucracy and manual reduplication has to be done before you computerise.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's been a really enlightening discussion. Thank you. I'd, I'd I'd really encourage anyone who listens to this, of which there aren't that many, but to 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 find Gordon on on Twitter, Doctor at Doctor Gordon Cordwell, um, and reach out if you're a senior in a hospital somewhere in the UK who's brave enough to do this. I completely agree with you. You know we can we can if we can liberate nurses' time, doctors' time, even if it's just twenty minutes per nurse per day. It might be. It would be more than that. But even if it's that that magnified across a trust is is massive, and actually working at UHB Birmingham with this hospital system, yeah, you know, the, the trust has its has its problems, but I'm convinced that the 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 fact that we have a, a lightning quick system that's got your meds, obs, drugs. Well, meds and drugs um, notes, all in the same place on the same system on different tabs. That's intuitive, coloured. It's not fancy. It doesn't take time to load. That definitely saves you time, and I'm convinced you can run wards with with fewer doctors because you can just, you know, oh, this patient needs some paracetamol. I've okay, done it, done it, it's done. You know, they have they have their problems. You have, you know, you have to spend a little bit more time maybe admitting your patient and setting it up and things. But I'm I'm convinced the efficiency saving is huge. But again, I'm not seeing empirical data to to prove that. Which I think is a shame. And I, I, I know you talk about processes. I, I've always thought the way to convince people is to is to show outcome benefit. And I wonder I wonder whether you could cluster randomise. You do a cluster randomized trial of your the Gordon Caldwell lean approach or cut the craft approach versus standard of care. And you could collect data on various metrics, you know, length of stay, survival, never events, pressure damage falls etc across a whole trust over a year and i think that would that would maybe that would maybe i i'm i'm convinced you wouldn't see it you do it as non inferiority maybe and you measure staff staff satisfaction what not
1: no i think those those sort of well those again the whole of those are really sort of process measures um yeah. and you know going back to your bit about the the form of it that you have there i know that um, when i was in worthing one of my foundation year twos had just come down from King's. And he said that doing the same work in Worthing that he'd done in King's took two hours a day longer. Yeah. So, and as you say, you might need fewer doctors. I'd say, no, You, if the objective is, can you get the doctors doing the things that matter? Yeah. So we don't spend enough, nowhere near enough time on shared decision-making, for example, in hospital that we should do. But so if the time wasn't spent filling in all those dreadful forms, then we could be spending more time with the patient explaining what the diagnosis is, what the treatment options really are. I mean, that's a simple example. Um, So, and then the other comment I'd make about that was Gawande said never slow down the overall pace of clinical care. So I I agree with you. There are bits that sometimes can take longer, (laughs) but save time eventually. Uh, And the sort of analogy, remember when we used to send Christmas cards to all our friends, if you put the effort in to put their names and, and addresses into a database, then you never had to write their address on the front of the card any longer because you print a label. Yeah. So that took a little bit of time the first year, but you saved time eventually. Yeah. So I'm sure there's a lot of you – know, it's not just that everything has to be quicker. You have to look at the overall pace of care and make sure that you're not slowing that down um, and that something that you're putting the effort into at the beginning pays off later on. Um, yeah.
0: I've been involved with a, well, was a symposium a couple of months ago about um, trying to fix the NHS. It was really interesting. We had quite a few sort of senior nurses from various hospitals in the Midlands and come up with some good ideas. Um, and uh, I will definitely take this back to the uh, to the next one.
1: Well, a bit about the patient involvement, I think, is really important. And, um, and we vastly underutilise patients. Yeah. And the the best data about the patients exists on the GP systems and to me it was a real disappointment that that go go live in November didn't happen with sharing the um, patient's notes uh, online and there was a hold up on that again Um, when I was working in Oban, I don't know if you know we can't see any NHS England data in in Scotland it might as well be Um, Uganda for how much information we can get, but looking after patients from the states was actually quite easy because they just used my mobile hotspot, got their smartphones fired up, and you could see their echocardiogram from three weeks before. Um, okay. So imp- I think giving empowering the patients by giving them access to the information. Yeah. Which goes back to your could the patient prepare? Well, why should they have to prepare? Why can't they just switch their phone on and show us? Yeah. Why can't we um, download that information digitally?
0: That's a really neat governance workaround, isn't it? Give the patient, the, given the patient, the, uh, the the
1: power to have their.
0: I don't know why we, you know, if you got to, if you want to see your notes, why on earth do you have to submit it in writing? These are your bloody notes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, again, going back to when I was a medical student, I went to Kenya in 1979, and we we're in a very remote part of Kenya where the people were illiterate, but the mothers yeah. carried their antenatal records with them, yeah. and they turned up t- two weeks before their due date to live in the hotel until hotel until they had their babies. So they entrusted illiterate. Um, pregnant women in Kenya with their own notes, but still we seem reticent. England's much better than Scotland. There seems to be no idea in Scotland that patients ought to have access to their own notes online at all.
0: Maybe we find it easy to trust literate people because we know they can't read it and misinterpret it. But I think it's a, I think it's a, um, it's a um, very outdated approach isn't it you know this paternalistic oh no we can't possibly let the patient have the actual blood result figures you know this is they, they could they could get it wrong well we get it wrong all the time anyway but gordon that's that's been fantastic
1: okay yeah i've got to wrap it up now as well richard
0: that's fine thank you so much and enjoy your, your beautiful beautiful home location and i'll uh, i'll knock on your door when i drive past <laughs> thanks so much cheers bye anyway. Don't just read the guidelines, it's for education and entertainment only and should not be taken as medical advice. I certainly cannot guarantee the factual accuracy of any of the content, but if you do have any constructive criticism, please find me on Twitter, at Richard Booker. If you like the show, please take the time to write a review on iTunes, Google or wherever else you listen. It will really help others find the podcast. See you soon.